This sermon was preached by Ed Moore, head pastor of North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens. Ed is one of the founders of Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. North Shore Baptist Church has planted five churches since 2005. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.ns-bc.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Good morning. Let me ask you please to take your Bible and turn to the 65th book of the Bible, to the book of Jude. As you turn, be very careful. If you aren't careful, you will miss it. It is only one chapter in length. It is only 25 verses. And we're going to make our way through the book of Jude. Last week we looked at the first four verses and we noted the author of the book, and that is Jude, the full brother of James and the half-brother of Jesus. Um, By the time he writes this book, the way he identifies himself as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's writing to a general audience of Christians, and he notes that they are called, that they are loved, and that they are kept. Uh, We spoke last week about that word called that speaks of the effectual calling that we receive unto salvation. And I received an email early in the week from a gentleman in our church, Vinny Nizzo, who said that on Good Friday, several years ago, he came into the service and he had one set of ears. He had a physical set of ears. He was listening to the word that was being preached and halfway through the service, he received another set of ears. He received ears in his heart, in his soul, and he heard then, not my voice, but the voice of the Holy Spirit calling him unto salvation. And it would be my prayer this morning that God would give you both physical ears to hear the words that I'm saying, but also to give you a spiritual set of ears whereby you might hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Well, if you are saved, you know what it's like to get that extra set of ears. And Jude goes on to wish uh, a blessing, a trifold blessing upon his readers. He wishes upon them peace, love, and mercy, peace, and love in abundance. And then he goes on to tell them why he is writing to them. He says, you know, I wanted to write to you about salvation. I wanted to write to you on the doctrine of soteriology. And I was even eager to do so because it's something that you and I share in common. But something has arisen in the church and uh, this has altered the course of my writing. There are some reprobate, ungodly people who have crept into the church unaware or unnoticed and they have changed the grace of God into a license for sin and they have denied our only Lord God and Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jude says... You can't just sit there. You've got to stand up and fight and earnestly contend for the faith. Uh, Not individually your faith, but the faith, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That is salvation uh, by faith alone in Christ alone, the word of God, the deity of Christ, the gospel. That is what is at stake here. And so Jude says, I am begging you to fight. Now, generally speaking, that is what the book is about. As we move into verses 5 through 7, Jude gives us three illustrations to build the case uh, for the character of the false teachers, but also to build a case for the character of God in relating to them. Now today we're only going to be able to cover verse 5, but let me read for you verses 5 through 7 because they all go together. Jude says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. 
and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, well, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Father in heaven today, as we look at this very weighty passage, which on uh, the outside, Lord, is a, a very, very gloomy passage. Uh, I pray, dear God, that through it we will, we will be able to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ through the gospel. Uh, I pray for myself, dear Lord, that as I uh, attack this subject, which, which is very grave and which is very serious, dear Lord, I pray that I would not shrink back from the truth of it, but that I would explain it very accurately. And I pray, dear Lord, that as I do, I uh, pray, Lord, that there would be a passion in my words and an unction in my soul, dear Lord, to reach the people with the truth of what is being said here. Uh, but yet, Lord, as passionate as I, might, as I might be, Lord, I want to recognize and I want to acknowledge today that the only way that the people this day are going to really hear what is being said and really apply that in their lives is if you, uh, through your Spirit, speak to this additional set of ears that you have given them, the ears of their soul, so that they might hear, Lord, your word uh, to their hearts, Lord. So please, may that be what transpires this day. Now, Father, I commit my preaching to you, Lord. I realize that I am just saying words, and I realize, Lord, that the people are just hearing words. But, Lord, we know that this is the means. It is through the foolishness of preaching that you are accomplishing your purposes. And so, Lord, I stand before you today, and I open your book, and I proclaim your word, and I ask you, Lord, please, to glorify yourself. Uh, this all belongs to you. So, Lord, please do with it what you will. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like you to note in Jude's literary style that he loves the number three. Now let's do a short study of this book and look at all of the use of trios in it. First of all, in verse 1, he says that they are called beloved and kept. And then in verse 2, he wishes upon them mercy, peace, and love. When you get to verse 3, the description of the apostate false teachers is that they are ungodly, that they pervert grace, and that they deny Jesus Christ. Uh, our text today is a trio of illustrations, the children of Israel, the angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 8, there are three things that they do, and there are three verbs that describe what they do. Uh, they defile, they reject, and they blaspheme. And then in verse 11, there's another trio of Old Testament illustrations. There's Cain, there's Balaam, and there's Korah. In chapter uh, 1 verse 16, they are grumblers and malcontent and boasters. And so these are the examples of the number three in Jude's book. Now, as much as he uses that book, he uses other numbers as well. But what we have in verses 5 through 7 are a tripod of examples. Before we get into them, uh, let me state what I stated last week, and that is that Jude is very fond of using Old Testament illustrations. Uh, the three that we have in front of us are the children of Israel, the angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah. But he also mentions Michael and Moses and Cain and Balaam and Korah and Enoch and Adam. Well, in 25 short verses, that's a lot of references to the Old Testament. And as such, uh, he is using this to persuade them. He is taking them back to what they need to remember or what they already knew. 
Look at the beginning of verse 5. Now I want to remind you. Well, what is he reminding them of? He is reminding them of things in the Old Testament. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. In other words, I'm not telling you anything new. I am aware that you are aware, and I don't apologize for what I am about to say. And the reason why not uh, is because they need to be reminded of this information. Now, why do they need to be reminded? Well, maybe they knew it at one time and they forgot. Or maybe they knew it and didn't really know what it meant. Uh, How often have you heard a verse in the Bible or a story from the Bible and you've known it for years, you've known it for a long time, you may have even memorized it, Uh, You might have thought you knew what it meant, or maybe you didn't even give it much thought at all. And then years, sometimes even decades later, you will read it again and you'll say, Oh my goodness, I I knew that, but I didn't really know that. And you'll know later what it means and how it can be applied. Well, maybe that's what Jude is doing here. The people may have known the stories of the children of Israel and of the angels which fell and of Sodom and Gomorrah, but they didn't really know how to apply that truth. Or maybe he's just reminding him because it is truth and therefore it is applicable and that in and of itself would be reason enough. But all of that to say you don't always need something new, but you always do need something that is true. And so Jude does not apologize for citing and interpreting three Old Testament stories. Now, before we get into this first story of the children of Israel, I want to say a word about the use of the Old Testament in the New Testament. You see, when Jude says, I want to remind you, implied in that is that they already knew that. And therefore it would be expected that this New Testament audience would know the details of these stories without providing background details. In other words, Jude assumes that his audience knows the Old Testament very well. Well, I would ask you, is that the case with you? When I mention this story of those children of Israel uh, that did not believe, do you know immediately what we're talking about? If you don't, I don't condemn you, and God doesn't condemn you. But it is something that you do want to learn, but it's not something in and of itself that you want to learn. But I would say, as a general practice, you always want to be learning about the, the Old Testament. Some people would argue and they would say, well, isn't the New Testament more important than the Old Testament? And I would say, yes, amen, it is more important than the Old Testament in that it is a fuller revelation of Jesus Christ. It is more important in that sense. But I would also say that you really can't know the New Testament in any depth at all without a good working knowledge of the Old Testament. So we need to read and know the Old Testament. We need to know these stories. The second thing I would say about the use of the Old Testament in the New is this. The reason that it was written, the reason that these things happened was as an example uh, so that we might know what we should and should not do. Turn please to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells us the purpose of the Old Testament. Listen as I read verses 6 through 11. Now these things, and the these things here is referring to the wilderness wanderings. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did, nor be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, that people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in such sexual immorality as some of them did. 23,000 fell in one day. 
We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Here we go. Now these things happened. They happened to them as an example. But they were written down. They were written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. And so... There is a practical purpose for the Old Testament. God says, look at them and learn. One final word about the Old Testament, and that is that it is about Jesus Christ. It's not just a collection of stories with a moral ending. No, they point to Jesus Christ and the gospel. Even this passage that we are in right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says that that rock was Christ. In verse 9, it says that they put Christ to the test. Jesus said in John 5, 39, Search the Scriptures, in them you think you have eternal life. But these Scriptures, that is the Old Testament Scriptures, testify of me. In the, on the Emmaus journey, Jesus, when speaking with the two disciples that he was walking with, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus interpreted to them all the script, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So, as you read the Old Testament, please keep this in mind. Number one, maybe you know these stories already, but you need to be reminded of them. That's okay. They are examples, and they are primarily speaking about Christ and the gospel. Well, what are the three illustrations that Jude chooses to use? Those that left Egypt, that is the children of Israel, the angels who fell from glory, and Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to take them one at a time. Uh, We are going to only be able to look at the first one today from verse 5. And as we start to take it apart, we notice that Jesus' name appears in this story from the Old Testament. Now that should seem a little bit curious to you. I know that some versions say the word Lord, uh, and that's also an accurate rendering since Jesus is Lord. But from my research, the best manuscripts say the word Jesus. Now I want to remind you that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. I think it's very interesting that there are several New Testament passages describing an event in the Old Testament hundreds of years before Jesus was born, born, born in Bethlehem. And the New Testament author will clearly say that the Old Testament story is about Jesus Christ and that he is the center of that action. For example, you remember in the faith chapter, when it talks about Moses, how he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And then it says that he considered the reproaches of Christ. Now get the picture. Christ is not going to be born for several hundred more years, but he considered the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt. Or John, when he is giving a description of the vision which Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6. You remember Isaiah 6 where Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. Well, what is it exactly that Isaiah saw? Well, John tells us in chapter 12, verse verse 41, that Isaiah said these things because he saw his, that is Jesus, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. He saw Christ. And even the passage that we read a little bit earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, the water came from the rock, and it says, and that rock was Christ. And there are many others. 
But the point is here that Jude, along with the other New Testament authors, recognizes the preeminence of Christ. And here, he specifically have said to have saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Now that word saved there is not a word for salvation. It is not salvific. Uh, It is that he delivered them. And before we get to the specific reference, uh, let's just take the helicopter and raise it up a little bit above the book of Jude and just look at the, at the trio of illustrations here and see if we can detect Jude's overarching point in grouping them together. In other words, what's the point of using one Old Testament reference after another? Is there anything that they all have in common? And I think from the text itself, we can say, yes, there are some context clues. For example, in verse 8, which follows verses 5, 6, and 7, it says, yet in like manner or in the same way, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. In other words, this little phrase, yet in like manner these people also, It refers to the three examples that came before. And Jude tells us what those similarities are. There's also a link between these three stories, the children of Israel, the fallen angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah, in that all of them started out with tremendous privileges. Jesus delivered the people out of Egypt. The angels had the privilege of actually being in glory and worshiping God. And Sodom and Gomorrah had the privilege of a missionary that was sent to them by the name of Lot. All of them started out with unusual privileges. Another thing that they all have in common is that God dealt with all of them, regardless of how godly they claimed to be, God dealt with all of them with a very severe punishment. And the third feature, which all of these stories have in common, is that their sin is specifically spelled out. What is the sin of the children of Israel? Jude tells us. It is unbelief. What is the sin of the angels that, that were kicked out of heaven? It was rebellion. What was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Jude tells us. It was sexual immorality. So why would Jude want to drive home their privileges, their punishment, and their sin? Well, maybe the reason Jude wants to do this is to send out a warning to all false teachers in the church. That is that your privileges mean nothing and that your sin will be exposed and you will indeed one day be severely punished. That maybe is the reason why he's doing it. This information would also give hope to the dear saints who were being destroyed by their influence. Um, I'm certain that maybe there are some other similarities or there are some other reasons why Jude grouped all these things together and maybe there are some context clues that I have overlooked or there's something else that would help us unpack the text. But for now, I think this is sufficient for our purposes today. And so with that backdrop, let's consider the first of these examples and the first one only, and that is the children of Israel. The children of Israel. And we're going to look at their privileges, their sin, and their punishment. How were they privileged? Well, first of all, the children of Israel were privileged in their ancestry, in that God sovereignly came to an idol worshiper in Ur of the Chaldees, a man by the name of Abraham. And he promised to make a great nation out of him and that through him all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. 
And so at age 100, God gives this man Abraham a son by the name of Isaac. And Isaac then turns around and has twelve uh, has a son named Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons. And the 11th of his sons, a young man by the name of Joseph, through a very circuitous route, gets the whole family to move to Egypt. And they are about 70 in number. Fade in, fade out, 430 years later, uh, there are not 70 of them. There are 2 million of them. But at this point, they are slaves and they are oppressed. And so God remembers His promise to Abraham and He raises up a man by the name of Moses to deliver the people out of the hand of Pharaoh. And God does does so through a series of miracles in the form of plagues that were so catastrophic that the only conclusion any reasonable person could make is that God is at work and that God is on our side, and that God is powerful, and that God can be trusted, and that God intends good for us. I mean, when you even consider the ten plagues that happened to the Egyptians, which did not touch the children of Israel in the land of Goshen, the water to blood, and the frogs, and the lice, and the flies, and the diseased animals, and the boils, and the hail, and the locusts, and the darkness, and especially the death of the firstborn. When you look at all of those things which happened to the Egyptians, which the Israelites saw with their own eyes but did not happen to them, you have to come to the conclusion, God is on our side. And after the final plague, they are released and they are set off for the promised land. But it's only a a temporary journey because soon after they left, uh, Pharaoh says to himself, I want my slaves back. And so he pursues them and he tries to retrieve them. But once again, they are delivered miraculously as they are basically backed into a corner at the Red Sea. And as they see the Red Sea part and they pass through on dry ground and then with their own eyes they watch the Egyptians drown. They make their way on to the promised land. And what happened as they were making their way on to the promised land? It is just one act of miraculous provision after another. When they are thirsty, the rock is struck and they are given to drink. When they are hungry, the quails come dropping out of the sky and six days a week the manna is on the ground. When they are in battle, uh, the hands of Moses are raised and they are in victory. When they need direction, there is a cloud by day and there is fire by night. They have provision after provision after provision. When they were in need, he gave. When they were in need, he gave. When they were in need, he gave. And he didn't just give, but he gave dramatically, he gave miraculously, he gave abundantly. Now, I know that nothing is impossible with God, but it would have been nearly impossible for God to give these people more evidence of His power and His love and His care. Which brings us to the story at hand. Numbers chapter 13 and Numbers chapter 14. You may turn there. The children of Israel have wandered through. They are on the precipice of going into the land. They have not been traveling that long. God says, I want you to go into the land and I want you to take the land. But first, we're going to appoint one representative from each of the 12 tribes. And you're going to go in and to look at the land and you're going to bring back a report. And so Joshua and Caleb, along with 10 other men, one from each tribe, they go in and they look at the land and they come back with a report. And their report is is very consistent and that is that this is a beautiful land it is a bountiful land it is a land flowing with milk and honey but they also come back with the report 
that there are giants in the land and we seem, as it were, to be grasshoppers in their sight. And so at Kadesh Barnea, they more or less take a vote and say, what is it that we are going to do? One man from each of the tribes is going to bring the report. And they are all in agreement that the land is plentiful, but I don't think that we can do it, everybody except for two of the men. And those two men are Joshua and Caleb. And so they are divided. Ten say we shouldn't do it, and two say we should believe God, and we should go in and take the land because He said we could do it, so therefore let's not fear. So now, the question is, are they going to obey God, or are they going to turn around and go back to Egypt? fail to obey God. Ten say, don't do it. Two say, we should do it. Pick up the reading in Numbers chapter 13, verse 30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. Now, what difference does that make if you've just seen God destroy people without even using you as an army? What difference does that make? So they brought to the people of the land of Israel a bad report of the land, for they had spied out, saying, the land uh, through which we gave, have gone out to spy out uh, is a land that devours its inhabitants and all of the people that we saw uh, are great in height. And there, well, you're not going to play basketball. What, what's the big deal? And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, uh, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Chapter 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to the land of Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. My goodness, these people have completely forgotten the Lord their God. Completely. And at this point, God threatens to annihilate them. And thankfully, Moses prays for them. He intercedes for them. But there is a punishment which is inflicted upon them. And the punishment that was inflicted upon them was this. Everybody whose name was taken in the census over the age of 20, will not enter into the land of promise. Listen as I read verses 26 through 30. And the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked generation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me, and say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, What you have said in my hearing I will do to you. And your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And... Of all your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land. Not one shall come into the land where I have swore that I would make you dwell, except for Joshua, except for Caleb, and for Joshua the son of Nun. That is it, the only ones. In other words, the only two men 20 years and older who will enter are Joshua and Caleb. Now, here's the math. Do you know how long it took 
to bury two million people, uh, two million people who died of natural causes, who basically died of old age, dying one by one, day by day. It took them 40 years. They basically walked in a circle for 40 years. And you know what they did? They walked and they stopped and they picked up their manna and they ate and they walked and they stopped and they picked up their manna. And oh, by the way, Simeon over here, he's dead. We've got to bury him. All right, here we go. And they walked and they picked up their manna and they ate. And for 40 years, here's what they did. They walked in a circle They dug graves and they ate manna. That's what they did. Why did they do that? The reason they did that was because of unbelief. Because of the horrible sin of unbelief. And the writer of Hebrews spells it out even more clearly for us. Turn please to the book of Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3. Verses 16 through 19. For who were those who heard yet rebelled? Was it not all who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked forty years? Uh, Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. They were not able to enter in because of unbelief. That is the story. You see their privileges. My goodness, miracle after miracle, provision after provision. Their sin. We can't do it. Their punishment. Forty years of wandering, dropping dead and being buried in the wilderness, not able to enter into the promised land. Now this story is a story which I'm sure is familiar to most of you. It is a very straightforward story. It's not a story which is hard to understand. But as we look at it today, we have to answer the questions, why in the world would Jude want his audience to know this story? And why would he think it is essential to remind them of this? And we have to ask the question, how in the world can we apply this story? Now what I'm about to submit to you really seems very straightforward because the parallels are unmistakable. And let's just look at it. Why did God destroy the people? In other words, it's a one-word answer, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to answer this question verbally. What is the one-word answer for why the people did not enter into the land? The answer is what? Ah, it is unbelief. And then we have to ask the question, why is it they, they did not believe? And the answer is because there were ten false prophets or ten false preachers who persuaded them to deny the word of God. You see, the people chose to believe and to follow the bad report rather than to believe God and to go in and take the land. And when you consider the fact that Jude is a book about false teachers, it is primarily a book which speaks not to the false teachers, but it speaks to believers, and it urges them to earnestly contend for the faith, to identify these false teachers, and to deal with these false teachers. And if you look at the story, you you have to do the math. And you have to say, okay, now the odds are against Joshua and Caleb within their own group. In fact, the ratio is five to one. There are ten who say we can't do it. There are only two who say we can. All right. Given that sampling of the children of Israel, 
Joshua and Caleb are in uh, the minority. If you've ever been in a boardroom and there's ten for and two against, you're in the two, you're going to have a hard time winning that. So the vast majority of people were against going in to take the land. But, here's the problem. The vast majority, the vast, vast, vast majority of people who said, no, we cannot do this, were not the people who went in to be the spies, but they are the people who saw the ten plagues. They are the people who actually slaughtered lambs and put blood above the doorpost and had their own firstborn uh, rescued. Uh, These are the people that actually on dry ground walked through the Red Sea. These are the people who probably that very morning reached down and picked up some manna and ate it. These were people who, if they at that exact moment were to look up in the sky, would see either a cloud or fire. These are people who had abundant evidence. And so the question becomes, with two million people, would you not think that there would be, let's just throw a number out there, the 1% who would say, hey, we can go in and occupy the land. Would there not be at least 1% who would say, we can do this? But you don't even need 1% of 2 million people to shut down 10 people. Let's just say there were 1,000 Just a thousand people out of two million who would say, don't listen to these guys. God has told us to go do it. Let's do it. Let's believe Him. But you don't even need a thousand. Let's say you only had 500. You don't even need 500. What if you just had a hundred? Even if you only had 100 out of 2 million people who would stand up and say, we cannot listen to these people. We must listen to God. We must believe the Word of God. We must believe what Joshua and Caleb have told us. But not even 100 people would speak up and say, wait a minute. And Jude says, I want you to know this. I want to remind you of this, even though you knew this already. And what he's reminding them of is how the few, if left unchecked and if believed, Uh, can influence the many and that for destruction. You see, the amount of damage that they can do is disproportionate to their numbers. So again, looking at the book in its context, that is the book of Jude, we look back at verse 3, we are to earnestly contend for the faith. I want to remind you, even though I just said it last week, that the way in which we contend for the faith is that we listen with a discerning ear and that we know the Bible and we think and reason from the Scriptures so that we can discern truth from error. And when we see error, we stand up and we say something. That is the application. Because ten men essentially destroyed two million. And that's a valid application. And that is an application for the church. But I would also like to, this day, give you an individual interpretation. An individual interpretation to consider as it relates to the gospel and as it relates to you as a person. Every single one of you is going to spend eternity somewhere. You will be somewhere in eternity. 
where will that be? You, like the children of Israel, have started out on this journey. Where are you? The writer of Hebrews gives it an individual, personal <clears throat> application of the gospel. Turn again to Hebrews chapter 3. Listen as he quotes Psalm 95. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you will hear his voice. There is this <clears throat> thought about salvation, which says that it is <clears throat> an event, and it does begin at a point in time in which an individual is regenerated. Uh, definitely, there was a time when you were not regenerated and then there was a moment in time when you were regenerated and given the gift of faith and repentance and you exercised it unto the salvation of your soul. And all those to whom that happened will in the end be in heaven. But there's also a false gospel, which is the gospel of decisionalism, which says that salvation is something which is at a point in time, something that you make a decision to encounter and then because you have encountered that regardless of what happens the rest of the way through well please don't worry about it you have your insurance you're good to go but if you just read the bible you'll see that that's not true and that word today needs to be impressed upon you to ask yourself where are you today Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That is the rebellion we read about in Numbers 13 and 14. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so what do you need to do as individuals, well, take heed, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here we go. For we have come to share Christ. Look at the next word. We have come to share Christ if, this is the doctrine of perseverance, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is written, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You say, well, how does this apply to you as an individual? Well, I think it applies to you as an individual here at North Shore Baptist Church uh, in that you have tremendous privileges. First of all, you're an American. and You have freedom to worship anytime you want to and in any way you want to. You take that for granted, but, but first of all, that is a tremendous privilege. And as Christians, you have 2,000 years of church history. People who've been making mistakes for 2,000 years who say, here is the walk, here's the way, do not walk in it. And there are the others who have done well in the past and said, here's the way, walk ye in it. So we have the example of 2,000 years of church history. 
as members of North Shore Baptist Church. You are not in a perfect church, but let me tell you, you are sitting today beside some people that genuinely love Jesus Christ. They are not here for social reasons. They are here because they love Christ. You are here in a genuine New Testament church where people love the Lord and where the teaching is going to be sound. You are in a place where... The Word of God is honored. And I believe, to the best of my knowledge, most of you own Bibles. If you do not own a Bible, please see me. You will not walk off of the property today without a Bible. We will give you a Bible. You own Bibles. We have the ministry of the Holy Spirit to convince and to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. Individually, let me ask you this question, and only you can answer it within your own heart. But my goodness, how much more evidence do you need? How many times has God provided for your needs? Could you ever count them? How many times has He answered prayer? How many times has He revealed subjectively His presence in leading you and giving you comfort when there was no one else there? How much more does He need to do in order to convince you that He is there and that He is powerful and that He is for you? And the greatest expression of proof that God has ever given to you is the gospel. First of all, the objective truths of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day. But more than that, the subjective results of the gospel, the peace that is in your heart, the change that has come in your life, the guilt that has been taken away. In other words, do you is, is what you are really lacking today more evidence Do you need God to give you more evidence in order to convince you that you need to trust Him? You have more than enough evidence. So the writer of Hebrews says, Beware that your faith doesn't fail. Because these three stories show the character of God, and that is that God does not care how far you've come. And He doesn't care how privileged you are. But the mark of a true believer is that they will press on to the end. Now, in this context, the true believer will not listen to the false preacher, will not listen to the false prophet. The true believer will stand up in the face of the one giving the false report and say, no, that is not true. The true believer will earnestly contend for the faith. Uh, That is collectively what we as a church must do. But individually... Again, I read to you Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. For we have come to share Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In this, he is not saying that you are saved by works. In this, he is not saying that you can lose your salvation. In this, what he is saying is there is an evidence as to whether or not you are saved and that evidence is going to be your faith and your faith is going to produce fruit. Back in March, I had my hip replaced, my right hip replaced. I was there, but I wasn't there. Because whenever they put whatever that is that makes you go to sleep in my arm, I no longer was there. So, I do not have a video of it. I have no photographic evidence. I don't know for sure that what they did is what they said they did. Now, I have some evidence in that it works a lot better now and that it doesn't hurt anymore But how do I know that they didn't put wood in my leg? How do I know they didn't just put some Legos together? 
how do I know, what is my evidence that, that, that there is actually titanium in my right leg right now? In my femur, how do I know that there's titanium? I'm going to tell you how I know. Because every time I walk into an airport, I will say to the TSA person, watch this. It's going to go off. And every time when I hear that beep, 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 I thank God because I know I've got a new hip. Now, the evidence is in the beep, 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 beep. I ask you as you walk through life and you say, I have faith. I have faith. My friends, walk through the detector and let's see if you have faith. If we keep our confidence firm to the end. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, the chapter of the Bible which speaks most eloquently of the gospel. This is the chapter where we get the phrase that we use as a theme for our church that the gospel is of first importance that christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried he was raised again according to the scriptures but it is not a cheap gospel it is a gospel which produces fruit first corinthians chapter 15 verse 2 speaking of the gospel and by which you are being saved if there's that word if if you hold fast to the word which I preach to you. If you hold fast to the word which I preach to you. And that's why Peter in chapter 1 verse 10 says, make your calling and election sure. Uh, that's why Paul in Philippians chapter 2 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That is why Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 says, examine yourselves as to whether or not you are in the faith. Now again, I'm not saying that you can lose your salvation. I'm not saying that we work our way to heaven. We are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. But if we are saved, then what we are going to do when the moment of decision comes and God says you press forward, even though ten voices around us may say, We can't do it. We don't press ahead. We are going to be the ones who will stand up and say, Oh, yes, we can. It is enough that Christ died and that He died for me. And so Jude writes that Jesus destroyed those who afterward did not believe. Ask yourself, do you believe and does your belief produce fruit? Not did you believe at a point in time, but are you today currently believing? And if you are, it's going to be evident. It's going to be evident by the way that you obey, the way that you pursue, the way that you love Jesus, and the way that you contend for the faith. And so, unbelief is a horrible sin. Where is your faith? Do you have it? Father in heaven this day. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners, or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.